The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Okay, a um, couple things. Uh, first of all, in your packet on the back, in the last page and a half, uh, what I try to do every week is basically put in bold the sources that I used, and I just want to draw your attention to that. So, um, for the most part, you can find that there. Um, the one that I did add is uh, there on page seven, uh, Anthony Saldarini, um, which is all about the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees in Palestine in the time period of, of Jesus. And um, I don't know if that's going to be the one on your Christmas list that you want put in your stocking, uh, to be honest with you. Probably not going to be the one that you're you're going to want people to uh, buy for you, unless um, maybe you need a good nap. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's probably not the most exciting read. Um, you know, it's not quite a spy novel or something. You know, like that. You know, um, but again, some of the usual suspects are on there. Uh, D. A. Carson's. Uh, somebody asked me about this last week. A lot of the D. A. Carson's commentaries, um, particularly his one in John, is fairly technical. Um, so there's going to be a lot in it that you might be like, I don't know anything about this or I don't really care. Um, but there are a lot of really good things that he will comment on that are helpful in just biblical theology. Some of the things that, some of the times I find when I teach that people are the most like intrigued, like I did not know that is typically a biblical biblical theology. It's in that realm of biblical theology. And D.A. Carson usually is pretty good about including a lot of that stuff in his commentary. So, all that being said, those are sources consulted, and um, you make use of that or ask me about any of those later if you want. Um, just as a review of things that we have been talking about over the last uh, week or so, um, obviously Jesus' baptism uh, is followed by him fasting out in the wilderness for 40 days, and we see him uh, sort of, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, we see that pattern of coming out of Egypt, going through the waters of baptism, out in the wilderness for 40 days, being very, uh, sort of walking lockstep with what the children of Israel are doing. And Matthew even tells you this in his gospel when he says, uh, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, it turns out to be Hosea, um, out of Egypt I called my son. And, and there the reference to calling his son out of Egypt, he's talking about Israel. And even in the prophet Hosea, he's talking about Israel. And what, the, what Matthew is trying to do in his gospel is help us see that Jesus is walking the steps of Israel. Jesus is taking the place of Israel and becoming Israel himself. So he is doing as one man what an entire nation was required to do. But he is taking it on his own shoulders and when he goes out into the wilderness, he is there tempted by the devil, just as the children of Israel are tempted with grumbling and complaining and all of those sorts of things in the wilderness. On their 40-year journey, Jesus is tempted on his 40-day journey out in the wilderness by Satan, and he conquers Satan there in the wilderness, turning him down, refuting him with God's word, trusting in God the entire way. And then he comes back into the promised land, just as the children of Israel did, but he, he comes in preaching the gospel. And so Matthew is showing you this little step to help draw your minds to the connection that's being made between Jesus and the sons of Israel, or, or the children of Israel. And so uh, Jesus comes back in, and obviously we saw um, that there is a kind of a passing of the torch in the gospels between John the Baptist and Jesus. We're going to see a little bit more of that as John kind of fades uh, from view, and Jesus grows in significance. But John is a significant figure because he represents the end of the Old Testament. And where, obviously, our Old Testament ends is Malachi, technically. Really, theologically, it kind of ends more with John the Baptist because he's the last prophet of the Old Testament. He's the last one to tell, hey, someone is coming right? All the prophets up to John and John say, hey, someone is coming. But once Jesus gets here, as we saw on Sunday, God speaks finally through his son. No one has to tell, hey, Jesus is coming again. Jesus says, hey, I'm here. 
And then he says, I'm gone and I'm coming back, right? So he's spoken all that he needs to speak. And so all that we have in the Bible is enough for us to testify about what's, what's going to happen. And so John is that kind of last uh, prophet of the Old Testament. Even, even uh, Jesus makes mention of that. But then there's this handing off of the baton essentially to Jesus where Jesus is now ushering in the new covenant. And he transitions from the old covenant to the new. And you see that in the miracle of the wedding at Cana. Jesus is there at Cana, and he performs this uh, miracle. And on the surface, I think a lot of times we can read through it and not really pay attention to what's being said in the miracle and just kind of go, look at that, or, or draw our attention to kind of the wrong things. And I'll be honest with you, that there's a huge temptation in that miracle story to draw, pay a lot of attention to the interaction between Mary and Jesus, right? Where Mary says, hey, they're out of wine, and Jesus says, and it's kind of a funny, I get, it's, it's a little bit humorous, right? You know, Mary comes to him and says, hey, they're out of wine, and Jesus says, woman, what does that have to do with me? And you know, that's kind of funny too. It's like, what was that? What's with that? That seems, you know, weird. And then she doesn't even respond to him at all. She just turns to the servants and says, do what he tells you, and then just walks off, <laughs> you know, like a mom commands her son, uh, you know, and, uh, and so then he does it. But I think if we draw, if we pay so much attention to that, there's a lot of ambiguity in what's happening there between uh, Mary and Jesus. Uh, what is with all the interaction there? Uh, who knows? There's a lot of Catholic doctrine that spawns out of that, like part of the reason why you pray to Mary and part of the, the uh, inclinations towards praying to Mary, kind of some of it stems from this story and that kind of thing. But, you know, it's making a lot of hay out of a lot of ambiguity in text. But if you actually pay attention to what's being said there, Jesus is telling them to fill with water these big, massive stone jars that hold upwards of 100 gallons of water that are used for a ceremonial washing of the hands that would be used in the Old Testament ritual. And Jesus takes that ceremonial washing water and turns it into wine. And the, the, traditionally, the view of the Messiah coming is that it's, His kingdom is brought in with the celebration of wine and good wine. And in fact, then the person draws out the wine and the, the, you know, the head of the banquet says, where'd this come from? You, got the, you went and got the 1894 you know, <laughs> version, the one that's been aged for a long time, whatever it is. You, know, he, this, this is, you normally don't bring out the best for the last, and you've brought out the best for the last. And so there's this picture at the very end of that story that Jesus is taking what was formerly used for the washing of hands, that ceremonial Old Testament ritual, and bringing in the new. So it's out with the old and in with the new. Or if you're talking about the water, then it's in with the old and out with the new. I don't know, however you want to say it. But, it, but, it's, but you see what I'm saying? There's a transition, a changing of the guard that's symbolized even in this miracle story that John is helping us to see. And as we continue with that kind of theme, there's also some cultural and kind of background stuff that I think is a little bit helpful to see uh, in where the Gospel of John is going to take us. So we're going we're to hang with John for just a little bit longer before we look at some of the other Gospels in the coming weeks. Um, but there's this, the image of this, um, I think this is culturally anyway, you see quite a bit of, or here maybe a lot um, made about this sort of meek and mild Jesus. And the picture that you get of Jesus is, um, at least if the culture has their, their say, is this sort of, uh, you know, really uh, timid, very soft-spoken uh, Jesus that's kind of coming onto the scene that's like, well, you be you and you kind of do what you want you know, I get it, but here's what I'm bringing in, and, you know, it's not a necessarily advocating for a change of lifestyle and things like that, which is completely preposterous, right? But you get this sort of feeling from the way the culture wants to paint Jesus as a sort of meek and mild Jesus, and he's wandering around Galilee, and he's offering these nice and entertaining stories and parables, and, uh, and that's why people are coming to him. People are coming to him because he tells such good stories, and he's such a swell guy, you know? 
And I, I think if you think of it that way, then you miss that there is a uh, sensitive and hostile atmosphere that he's coming into. And, and it, I think it fails to actually present what's true of the land at the time. Do you notice that people are flocking to John the Baptist? They're like, they're going out, they're going out to me. Even the Pharisees are going out to me. Do you notice in the Gospels that the Pharisees seem to have uh, quite a bit of control? They seem to have a lot of power and authority uh, that Jesus comes after. And do you notice that that meek and mild Jesus somehow doesn't seem to mesh with the one that goes into the temple and turns over the tables and makes a whip of cords? And it's a little bit ambiguous in the text whether he takes that whip of cords and just drives out the animals or he might go after the money changers and hit them as well with the whip. I mean, I get it why you would do that with the animals to drive them out, but one of the texts, I think, is John leaves it a little bit ambiguous as to whether or not he actually strikes a, a money changer or two with that same whip of cords. And, uh, and so it's possible that he does that too, but you, you notice that the presentation of Jesus in the culture doesn't seem to mesh with some of the stories that you read. And you want to see him as this sort of timid kind of guy, I guess, because he comes across as meek and mild, but at the same time, it's like a totally different person than comes into the temple. Well, uh, I think we're, if we pay attention to the atmosphere, the situation, the cultural uh, situation that he comes into, uh, it, it will kind of change maybe our picture of who Jesus really is and what he's doing and why people are actually coming to him and why the Pharisees are so intrigued by this guy and asking so many questions about him. Politics and religion in the land were deeply intertwined in Israel. And any sort of claims to be the Messiah or any kind of messianic ideas are viewed as threats to the political status quo. You're going to see in John in the Gospel of John, as we get closer to the resurrection, that part of the reason that the Pharisees decide to kill Jesus is not because he claims to be the Messiah. It's because he raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, why would that cause somebody to want to kill the man who did this? The reason that they give is, if we got a raised dead guy walking around, People are going to hail this guy as the Messiah. And then Rome is going to come and destroy us. So for the Pharisees, most of the reason that they give for wanting to put Jesus to death is because of the threat that he poses to their power. And part of the reason they have power is because the province of Judea and how, where it ranks in the Roman Empire. So we've talked a little bit about this, but it, it bears repeating because I think it's worth drawing our attention to. Judea was a province, what's considered to be a province of second rank, which means it was ruled through the use of auxiliary troops and not legions. So what all of that means is that Rome didn't really care so much about Judea as long as two things were true. It remained peaceful, and the money kept coming in, right? As long as those two things, those two boxes were checked, it really didn't care much about the region, okay? So, we're looking at the nation of Israel being roughly the size of the state of New Jersey, okay? In the whole scheme of the Roman Empire, that's not a significant amount of land, Okay? Um, there are more, uh, I presume, more fertile, more fertile places for the, you know, Roman Empire to be concerned about, and and so essentially what that meant was, the people who were tasked with leading the area or ruling over the area, were never amazing. They were never the the you know heir apparents. They were never the, you know top ranks or anything like that. In fact, if you'll remember, you've got two big areas 
in this land. There's the area in the north, which is like Galilee and that kind of area where Jesus spent a lot of his time. Then there's the area in the south, which contains Jerusalem as the main city, and that would be considered the province of Judea, right? Well, in Judea, remember, there was a ruler that was appointed as Herod, Herod the Great's son was appointed as ruler over there, and he flamed out pretty bad. And, uh, and they just left it to kind of just some, some of their, te- their, their uh, governors, right? Of which Pontius Pilate was actually one. And so they didn't see it as worth like put, sending some of their best men down there to ensure that it remained peaceful. They were just like, look, keep the Jews happy. Don't, don't get them angry and keep the money flowing. So tax collecting is going to be a big part of the area and somebody there to just go, hey, cut it out and keep the Jews at bay is going to be the second part. So with that, if you're thinking about it that way, then the Pharisees, as the religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, the Sanhedrin, as the religious leaders of the area, are going to enjoy a lot of flexibility. They're going to be able to, because essentially it's a religious area. So if the religious leaders can put a little control on the people, keep them at bay, have their temple worship services and all those kinds of things, and they can lead the people, well, then why would Rome want to mess with that, right? Just make sure there's not, a, not an uprising. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees enjoy a lot of flexibility. So when Jesus starts his whole ministry... He then poses a threat. Anybody coming in saying they're the Messiah, anybody coming in doing miracles is a threat. Because, hey, we got a good thing going right now. And you remember the years before Rome and before all this, where it was constantly a battle over the temple, we got things right where we want them right now. Why would we mess with that? So the point is, there's uh, politics and religion are intertwined. The Pharisees have a good bit of power. And so what you'll notice then about Jesus' ministry is the earlier on you are in the ministry, you see that his kind of scheme or his approach to ministry is really avoiding detection from the religious leaders. And you'll probably know what I mean when we start reading some of these passages. You go, oh yeah, I've, I've read that before and didn't really think much about it. But look at John 4, 1 to 3. This is uh, skipping a little bit ahead of where we're going to spend most of our time. But it says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. You, You notice that, what he's doing? John gained a lot of attention from the Pharisees. They came out there, and remember, John is the one that said, who warned you to be baptized, you know, <laughs> bear fruit in keeping with repentance. His axe is laid to the root. He's going to cut you down. And, you know, he starts talking to the Pharisees, really, you know, I don't know, slamming them. And, uh, and so now that Jesus is out there baptizing, and of course his disciples are the, really the ones baptizing, but now that his disciples are out there baptizing people in the water, and he's gaining quite a following, even one that's, what we find out, is larger than John's. The Pharisees find out, and what are they going to do? They're going to go out there, and their attention is now going to be on Jesus. And so what does Jesus do? Leaves the area and goes to Galilee, where the Pharisees have little to no reach. Okay? Most of the Pharisees, you'll, actually in one of the Gospels, they send a platoon up there to Galilee to investigate this little guy who's, you know, doing these miracles or supposedly doing these miracles. And so, uh, so but for, by and large, they don't have much reach up where he goes into Galilee. They have most of their reach down there around Jerusalem, which is where Jesus is baptizing in this scene by where John is. And so once he departs for Galilee, he's sort of left alone to one degree or another. Uh, with the Galileans. And when he's baptizing and when he's walking on water and when he's, you know, doing the various miracles like the wedding at Cana and various things like that, the people in Galilee are following him. They're believing in him. They're, his first disciples are from the area. In fact, when you see him come into Jerusalem at the end of his ministry and he's riding on a donkey, the ones laying the palm branches on the ground are the ones from Galilee that followed with him into the city. 
They're with him in that little parade that's coming in. Because it's right when he enters the city. So the Galileans are gaining an interest. They're following him. So that's where he departs once the Pharisees gain their notice. But then you notice this in a couple other Gospels as well. And I just put down two references. I could probably put down 15 or more references, maybe even more than that. But Mark 1.34 here says, After he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Verse uh, 42, which is just a few verses later, And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing that Moses commanded for proof, of, proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. Now, what, this is commonly referred to as Mark's secret or the Markan secret, is that in the Gospel of Mark, Mark draws your attention to the fact that Jesus is telling everybody, shut up and don't tell nobody of what's going on. And a lot of times you read that and you go, well, why is he, why is he doing it? Why does Jesus not want them to tell? Well, you notice there's a myriad of things probably that are going on. One of them is that he's drawing like a crazy crowd. And, but, but then you think, well, okay, well, if you're the Messiah and you're bringing in you know, the truth of God's kingdom and you're wanting people to repent and you're the one that John was talking about, wouldn't you want as many people as possible to hear about it? Well, part of the reason that he doesn't is exactly what you saw in the Gospel of John when he left the area for Galilee. Why was that? Because the Pharisees start to take notice. Now, with this climate that's going on, which is the Pharisees enjoy some flexibility, everything, politics and religion, draws a crowd. Everything that, draw, that talks about politics and religion is, is seen as a threat to the Pharisees' rule and authority. It's not a wonder that Jesus got crucified. It's a wonder that it took three and a half years to get crucified, right? What is, becomes very obvious by the end of the Gospels, each one of them, is that Jesus getting arrested and crucified is by his own decision, right? So he tells the, the, his disciples, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. But it's his to decide at God's timing when to lay that down. So he knows, no doubt, the day that that's coming. He knows the time that that's coming. And it's not coming a day sooner than that. And so how is it going to be forestalled in a climate like this where everything is so easily combustible and the Pharisees are looking for a reason to slap down anybody who might think that they're bigger than what they should be? Well, it's by this, right? By him doing things kind of under the cloak of darkness to one degree or another. Okay? So, uh, the Jewish people of this era were a highly religious group. They regularly made, life, made long journeys on foot to the festivals in Jerusalem. So if you're going from Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem, that's, I mean, 20 plus miles on foot easily. Maybe more, depending on where you're from. Uh, so you could be easily looking at days to get down there, uh, or, or at least you know, full, some, some full days uh, to get down there, especially if you're taking a big group and you've got children and you've got all these kinds of things. It could take a long time to get down there, depending on where you're from. So these people are making, regularly making trips to Jerusalem on foot, their, you know, the, their religious beliefs, uh, their, their practice of the Torah, all of those things govern their daily decisions, their, their very lives are done. So he's coming into a climate of, of religious zeal or fervor for Judaism to one degree or another. And so people are on the lookout for things like this. And, and obviously people are seeking out teachers. They do that with John the Baptist and many others. Now, most of the Jews are, because of, the, because of Rome sort of keeping 
you know, the area of Judea and all of Israel sort of at arm's length, just kind of maintaining some oversight, but not really caring too much about it. Um, and because of the many teachers that they've got in the area, the people are giving most of their attention not to political leaders like Rome or anything like that, but more to the, leader, the, the leaders who are over their religious life. So they pay way more attention to the Torah, to the temple, and to the territory, that would be the land, um, that, is, that becomes kind of the heart of Jew, the Jewish religion in Jesus' day, and to some degree, even to this day. Um, so if you kind of, I, I think that at least helps kind of think about the sort of climate and atmosphere that Jesus is in. So when he comes in as Messiah, performing miracles, it's not just going to attract attention, it's going to attract negative attention too. It is a combustible climate. The Jews have every incentive to squash down anything that would look exciting. We don't want excitement, right? We want calm. That's what we want. We want peace. And if we have to kill to keep the peace, then we'll do that. Because ultimately they want power. So, within that context, here comes someone approaching Jesus. Coming to him to ask him a question. And it's a man by the name of Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He's called a ruler of the Jews. And he comes to Jesus in Jerusalem during the Passover festival. Now, I want to say about this real quick, just as far as a timeline goes. It's unclear which Passover festival this is that Nicodemus comes to him. I think Nicodemus comes very early on in Jesus' ministry. Okay? Because I think John is going to tell us that John the Baptist, John the author, is going to tell us that John the Baptist is still alive when Nicodemus comes to him. But if you pay attention to the Gospel of John, just before this, Jesus goes into the temple and turns over the tables and drives out the money changers. Now the reason that's important is because in the other three Gospels, that happens in the last week of Jesus' life, right before he dies. So, then there's a question, which is it? Is it early on, or is it later on? Or are there two? And that's a good question. I don't necessarily know the answer to that. I think, personally, that John moves it up early in the timeline, but it actually happens later. Because John gives us no chronology. He gives us no time markers for the turning over the table. He just throws the story in there. But then with John the Baptist, he gives us a time marker as to where that happened in relation to Nicodemus. So it seems like John cares nothing for chronology, and that's true. Most of the gospel writers do not care anything about chronology, not like we do, anyway. Okay, So you'll notice that if you're reading the Gospel of John, that the, the turning over the, ta- the tables in the temple in Jesus' ministry is very early on. The rest of the gospel is very late. I'm going to treat it like it's very late, and we'll get to it later. Okay? Does that make sense? That's why I'm skipping over it for now. Okay. Um, but the point is, Jesus uh, is approached by this man who's who's told to us that he is a Pharisee, that he's called a ruler of the Jews. He comes to Jesus in one of the many Passovers, at least four, that he uh, celebrated during the time period of the Gospels. And he addresses him as rabbi. He recognizes him as a teacher from God. Um, And in return, Jesus uh, is hard on poor Nick. He characterizes him as an ignorant person, even though he's a teacher in, in Israel. He's like, uh, are you serious, really, right now? Like, he's, he's kind of hard on him. Uh, so you'll, you'll see here in uh, John 3, 1 to 15. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? 
Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher in Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one who has ascended into heaven except no no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. All right. Um, so Nicodemus fits the profile of the Pharisees in that he has an official capacity in Jerusalem. He knows about Jesus, and he has an interest in his teaching and feels the threat of disapproval from his fellow Pharisees. So he comes to Jesus. What time of day? Nighttime. And that is for a reason. I'm sure there are many reasons that possibly this fits into his schedule. Uh, Pharisees were known to teach long into the day, so I'm sure nighttime was relatively open. But that is clearly not what's presented in the gospel as the reason why he came to Jesus at night. And if you look at John uh, 7.52, um, this is when Nicodemus speaks up on behalf of Jesus later on in John's gospel. It says, They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So that's the Pharisees replying to him in his question. And then John 12, 42, it says, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. So that's of the Pharisees. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. You see the power and authority that the Pharisees have in the region. Especially over the religious life in the region. And a people that were very concerned about their religious life and saw that as the priority of life, not what the Roman government's saying, they care more about what the Pharisees think of them than anything else. So they got a lot to put on the line if they're going to go see this guy out here in the wilderness, even to investigate his claims. And just to be seen with Jesus is, I mean, tantamount to treason? So Nicodemus comes to him by night, and he is afraid of being disapproved of by the Pharisees. And so he claims that he can see something of who Jesus is in the miracles. You notice that in verse 2. I'm going to get to the Scriptures here. John uh, 3, 2, he says, The man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, up to this point in the gospel, you've seen Jesus do one miracle. And that is the wedding at Cana. And at least by logic, by history, and by the biblical account, there seem to be no Pharisees there. How does Nicodemus know this? Well, just a few verses later, in John 2, 23, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So he's obviously, John, it's John's way of saying there was a whole bunch more. And John only gives you pretty much seven big miracles of Jesus aside from his resurrection. And the rest of them are just very, you know, the big miracles. But then in the middle, he's basically telling you there was a whole lot more. 
I could, feel, I could feel all the books in the world with the amount of stuff that he did and said and taught and the miracles that he did. So you just take it on the assumption that there was a whole bunch more in there. And John kind of gives us that clue that there was more. And so we assume Nicodemus has seen some of these things and the Pharisees have begun to question some of these things. How in the world can this man do these kinds of things? And so he sees the, the, uh, the miracles. He you know, sees the, the claims that are being made. And he calls him a teacher and a rabbi. He gives him all the, all the deference and all that kind of stuff in the scene. But then Jesus comes back to him. And you notice how Jesus responds to him in a very blunt way. And it can kind of be a little bit confusing, I think, if you're not looking for it. Jesus insists that no one can see the kingdom of God, the saving reign of God, or even see the miraculous works and really understand them for what they are, Unless, what? He's born again. You can't know anything about this unless you're born again. Um, so John 3, 3, he says, uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Um, and then uh, notice that just in the passage before this, John gives us this little clue. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to, to them, the people that wanted to believe in him, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He's reading the hearts of people as they, as they come to him, and he tells Nicodemus, he sees Nicodemus' problem. You recognize me as a teacher, but you marvel at the works like you don't know where they come from. Well, God's clearly with you. What do you mean God's with me? What does that mean? God's with me. He's going to tell him, I've come from heaven. All right? <laughs> like at the end of this. Right? So pretty, pretty plainly. And so what does it mean that, he's, that he, he's with him? He says, well, you can't understand any of these things unless, he's born, unless you're born again. And we're going to talk about this in just a second because Nicodemus is really thrown off by this. Like, what, what, are you, what do you mean born again? Now the prophets, to help kind of bring these threads together, and let's understand what this means. The prophets foresaw the advent of a kingdom at the end of history that would pre be presided over by a son of David, by the Lord's servant, and by, yes, the Lord himself. This is important, I think, to just put in your memory because I have heard Jews argue today that the reason they don't believe personally, uh, that Jesus is the Messiah is because he claimed to be God and the Messiah was not going to be God himself. But if you read the prophets, the prophets seem to say, eh, but he might be, right? Here's some of them. So Isaiah 9, 1-7, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad with the divide of the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of, for, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling, tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and and of, of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of the host, of hosts will do this. Well, if he's called mighty God, I mean, if you want to take it figuratively, I guess you could say that he won't be God. But if you take that literally, then what you have in Jesus and his claims is true. That's exactly what he said was going to be the case. Uh, Isaiah 9, 11. Let me make sure I'm just keeping up with my verses here. 
verse 11, but the Lord raises the adversaries of Rezin against him and stirs up his enemies. In Zechariah 9, 9-10, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Be, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth. Uh, Isaiah 42, this tells you he's going to be the Lord's servant. In Isaiah 42, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not speak, and a a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Uh, let's go to the, the fact that he will, he will be the Lord himself. Look at Zechariah 14.9. Uh, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. I mean, <laughs> how else do you want to see the coming of the Messiah but as God himself? Now, in fairness, the prophets presented as this coming Messiah is going to be God Himself, and yet He's also going to be different at the same time. Well, what do you know? Here's Jesus, right? Matching the description to a T. All right. So, the prophets saw that that day was was coming. Okay? And then, on top of that, they also talked about what that day was going to be like. In other words, what this Messiah, what, what would be you know, the, the thing that he would accomplish. What was it that he was really going to do? And when you put it together with the bringing of the new covenant, you get kind of the fuller picture of Jesus' whole ministry and all that he claimed to be bringing. So to, he, uh, he, to be transformed in line with the promises of life under that king that's coming, the Messiah, meant to enjoy a new heart for God. Cleansing of sin in the fullness of the Spirit, or what we would call new birth. So, if you think back to what Jesus tells Nicodemus, are you a teacher in Israel and you don't understand what I mean by born again? Nicodemus, you should have read your Old Testament. The Messiah is coming. This is how you're going to recognize him. He's going to bind up the brokenhearted. He's going to heal the lame. He's going to heal the blind. All the things you're seeing me do, doing. And then how do you not know what I'm talking about when you must be born again comes into the equation? You, You must have a new birth. How do you not know this? Because this is exactly what was promised in the new covenant when it was promised through the prophets. So Jeremiah 31, 31-34, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Or how about Ezekiel 36, 25-27, which is why Jesus gives the quote that he gives in just a minute. I will sprinkle clean water on them. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. You must be born of the Spirit and water, right? Uh, And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
seems pretty evident by what Jesus then tells Nicodemus. You must be born. What does it mean to be born again? What are you talking about? How do you not know this? You must be born of water and the Spirit. Ezekiel 36, sprinkle clean water on you, cleanse you from all your uncleannesses, put my Spirit within you. How do you not know this, Nicodemus? You should. You're a teacher in Israel. Okay, so the regeneration that Jesus describes here is described by a word that we have translated in our text, born again, which is a good translation. But it can also be translated born from above. There's ambiguity in this word. Jesus means it how? Come on now. Born from above. Nicodemus takes it to mean reborn. Do I have to go in my mother's womb and be born again? How can someone possibly do that? You imbecile. <laughs> Jesus is, <laughs> I'm putting words in his mouth. That's not nice or sanitary. Um, but he says you must be born from above. That's how he means it. And, and so uh, what he's talking about here, to be born from above, to have God's spirit within you, when, when God talks about this in Ezekiel and even in Isaiah or Jeremiah when he promises the new covenant in Isaiah 2, the, the promise is to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. What he's talking about there is not, hey, you know, you need to reform your attitude. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a complete overhaul of the nature of a person. It's radically different. You absolutely have to have a spirit within you. And what will that spirit do? Cause you to obey my laws, my statutes, my rules. Cause you to follow me. I will be your God. You will be my people. Well, why, would, why would that be an important thing for Israel? Why would it be important for Nicodemus to have that if he's going to understand the miracles that Jesus is doing? And understand who he is. Yeah. In the old, James says it's the, it's the transition between the old and the new. The old, they don't have the Spirit of God in them. They have hearts of stone, hearts of flesh. And what's given to them in the law of Moses, they cannot follow. By the way, if you read Deuteronomy closely, you'll see Moses tells them, Obey me. And then he tells them in Deuteronomy chapter 30, you can't unless God gives you a new heart. So he tells them, here's the rules. And you're going to see what the effects of the fall have actually done to you. That you don't want to follow God. And that's the problem. But this is Nicodemus' problem. The reason that he can't understand the miracles, and that he says, you got to be somebody special. And why Jesus is like, what on earth are you talking about? Is because his heart is not the heart of the Spirit that would allow him to see this and go, you are the Messiah. You are the one. Why are you here under the cover of darkness? Because you're terrified of the powers that be, but if you knew who I was, you wouldn't be, is the implication right? Of that. So he says, you got to be born from above. Now, the thought in Jesus' day was that all Jews, all the Jews, except for perhaps the openly apostate, meaning the ones that just said, forget Judaism, and ran the opposite direction. I don't want anything to do with this. The apostate. Or the wicked. I mean, the desperately wicked. He, murderers and the, you know, vile, vile, vile people. That all of them were in the kingdom. And they were admitted to the kingdom by default. Because they're Jews. That's why John says, don't pretend to say we have Abraham as our father. Because God can raise up from these stones children of Abraham. So don't even say that, right? That's their disposition. But you notice what's happening here in this scene is Jesus is telling a respected 
member, a ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, which we haven't even really got to yet, but is the ruling class in Israel, the Supreme Court, if you will, in Israel that you're not in right now unless you're born again. So, you can imagine then what he's saying about the kingdom of God. you got to go all the way back to the beginning and start over. <laughs> this is not... This is not, let's take it from the top, right? You must be born from above, right? All over again. So this is, you know, kind of for a Jew, this is really shocking, appalling. But the ambiguity of the word, which can mean born again, it can mean born from above, uh, causes obviously Nicodemus some confusion where he asks, is it possible for me to go back into my mother and be born all over again? And that kind of thing. And uh, Jesus, is, Jesus reasons with him that like generates like. In other words, what's born of flesh is flesh, right? So like generates like. Only heaven then, by that logic, if you as a human, you give birth to humans. And how is one born from above? How does that happen? Heaven is the only one that can do it. You can't born yourself again. This is particularly confounding for Nicodemus. First of all, who by default assumed in his conversation with Jesus that he was in. Now he's learning that he's out. The evidence that he is out is that he cannot see. Not only is he under the cover of darkness, but metaphorically he is under the darkness of sin. He cannot see Jesus for who he is. All of that is evidence that he's not in because only the ones born of heaven can actually see this. That's it. Okay, so only heaven can do that. So only heaven-natured beings can give birth to heaven-natured beings, right? So that means only the Spirit can cause people to be born again. So John 5... Uh, 3, 5, to 7. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again, or you must be born from above. You must be born, in other words, of the Spirit. Okay. So to explain the nature of this new birth, Jesus draws this analogy between the effects of the wind and the effects of the Spirit. And this is where it can get kind of hard to follow. But he says, uh, with both the wind and the Spirit, we cannot control them, but we can see their effects. That's his point. You can't control the wind, you don't, know, you don't know where it comes from. You don't know its source, in other words, but it just kind of rushes by you, and you can't see it, nor can you control it, but you see its effects, right? Spirit, which is the same word, wind, spirit, is the same word, is also something that you can't control, but you can see its effects. So look at John 3, 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Meaning, you, can't, you don't know how this person sees Jesus. Nicodemus' problem. He, he, he's there talking to Jesus. He has seen signs, but he doesn't understand them. But then there's other people who see his signs and go, that's the guy. That's the Messiah. What's the difference between those two people? Jesus says, one is born from above, one is not. So just as the wind comes by, you don't know where it comes from, you can't control it, so it is with the Spirit of God who comes into a person, gives them eyes to see that they can look at Jesus and go, that's the Messiah, right there. That's Him. I understand who He is and I believe. Which is Nicodemus' main hang-up right now. What you notice is this is, goes back to what John said at the very beginning of his Gospel in chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. 
But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Listen to this in verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, the person who believes and has eternal life, whom Jesus gave the right to become children of God, are the ones that are born of God. In other words, God is the one that borned them. Again, they are heaven-born. They didn't born again themselves. Yeah, or else they would boast. Exactly, like what James just said. They were born from above. Now, with that filter, with that lens that you're looking through, listen to what Jesus tells to Peter in Matthew chapter 16. Simon Peter replied, right? Jesus, remember, this is the middle of Jesus saying, okay, who do people say that I am? You're, some say you're a prophet, some say you're... Uh, okay, who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood, meaning your own will, your own mind, did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Borned him again. Opened his eyes that he could see. If you don't understand that, being born again, being directed from heaven, opening the eyes of those who see Jesus and believe, then what follows Jesus telling Peter this, you will never understand. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If you don't understand what he's saying here, then when he tells Peter that, you're going to think, well, the church is built on Peter. It's a Catholic church. No, 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 no. The church is built on the confession. Eh, partly. The church is built on heaven-born people revealed by the Spirit of God who confess Jesus is Lord. That's what it's built on. And on that, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Because once they are heaven-born... They'll never be heaven unborn. They'll never be heaven aborted. Let's put it that way. Okay. So where the Spirit works, in other words, the effects are undeniable. So that's another way of saying what I just said, which is, I can't see the Spirit move, like I can't watch Him move, into the hearts of a person and see, ha-ha, see the faith that you have. Some apostles were given that one-time thing, but that's not the norm for any of us. We can't see that. But we do see the effects of a person whose eyes are open. They see, say Jesus is Lord. They recognize Him as Lord, and they follow Him with their lives, and there's fruit that is born out of their lives because they're obviously heaven-born. So the mistake, or the 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 effects are unmistakable. The reborn from heaven, they see Jesus, they understand Him, and they believe in Him. These are the things Jesus is telling Nicodemus you don't have. Now, as we apply this to not only ourselves, how did we come to faith in Jesus, some will argue tooth and nail that I heard the call of the gospel, I stood up, I went forward and was baptized. You did that. And those things are necessary. To be baptized, to follow Jesus, to believe, to confess Him as Lord, all those things are necessary. But how did they come about? That's not how you were saved. That's how you joined a church, for sure. That's how you declared your allegiance to Christ. How were you saved? Born from heaven. You would not have stood up and said yes to Jesus. You would not have repented of your sins. You would not have confessed Him as Lord. All those things are necessary. You would not have done that. 
unless He borned you again. Period. So as we apply that to ourselves, that's worth noting as we think about our own salvation. How that came about? By the grace of God. But second, how do we see those people around us, especially family members, friends, neighbors, who are the expression lost as a goose in a snowstorm? And you think to yourself, man, I've shared the gospel with them a thousand times. And they don't seem to believe what I'm telling them, and I'm giving up hope. Nicodemus is a really good case study. Because in John 3, he comes to Jesus by cover of darkness, and he's like, I don't get this. And then John 7, he says to the Pharisees, but when we just try a guy without like hearing him out and really seeing, and they're like, who are you? Why don't you go search the scriptures, you newbie, you know? And then in John 12, we learn there's some higher-ups that actually believed in Jesus, but they were afraid. And what do we see at the end of John? There's Nicodemus at the foot of the cross, taking Jesus down. So even with those people that we go, oh, are they not born again? We can't give up hope. That happens at any moment. We have no idea. We don't know where the Spirit blows. We don't know when. We don't know why. We are commissioned to tell, to share. For Nicodemus, it seems to have been an entire book. All of, if this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, which I think it's at least towards the beginning, certainly the last of Nicodemus is at the end of Jesus' ministry. It took three and a half years, let's say, for Nicodemus to see the truth of Jesus and be so bold as to go to the foot of a cross of, a, of the crucified in defiance of the rest of the Sanhedrin. So we can't give up hope. You keep telling. And for some, it takes one sharing of the gospel. And for others, it takes one billion. Question. Right, Timothy. There it is. There it is. Yeah. So, you know, I, there's with that passage that you read, give the reference to that. Yeah, Titus 3. Verses. 1 through 7. Um, I think, you know, there, there is a real need for us all and daily, I think it is, to understand our salvation th by the grace that it really is. It fuels worship. That's the reason you sing. That's the reason you rejoice. Is, is yes, because of the, the worth of Christ and the, mag you know, the, the magnitude of God and, and that kind of thing, but we wouldn't be doing that unless we were saved by grace. Unless we could stand there and go, I have no idea why he saved me, but he did. Yeah. Fuels worship. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you keep sharing and you trust. 
And, but it, but it, isn't it great confidence, though, in sharing the gospel that you go, I, I was stammering and stumbling through that, and I didn't say, I walked away, you know, and I'm still thinking a year later what I wish I would have said, and if I was given another chance, I'd say that next time, and the next time I'm presented with an opportunity, it slips my mind again, and I'm like, why, how did I forget that? And what gives you the resolve after that to go, Welp, tis what it is, except to say the Lord is sovereign and he will open the eyes of the blind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have opened our eyes to the need for a Savior, that you have saved us, that you have applied the blood of Christ 2,000 years ago to our account, that you have declared us not guilty in your courtroom by grace, by the blood of Jesus Christ, alone, we are grateful that you gave us eyes to see and that we confess and believe and by faith are justified. What a magnificent grace this is. Gift that we've been given. And I pray you give us the boldness to give it to others in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.